This morning we continue to consider the discussion and investigation of the sovereignty of God. If you've not heard that term before, I will explain it later, so hang on. Psalm 93. I will look at two aspects regarding the sovereignty of God. Last week we defined sovereignty, but there were those of you who weren't here, and so I will repeat that definition later on in the sermon. But for now, I want to highlight to you that I'm going to cover two aspects of God's sovereignty. Number one, God's sovereignty in relation to creation. And then secondly, God's sovereignty in relation to His creatures. So creation and creatures. I probably won't get to creatures, even though I have it in my notes. I do want to get to it. Because that is the, the point of contention that a lot of people have. Does God have absolute sovereignty over people? I'm not gi- I want to give attention to that, but I want to give time to it as well. I don't want to rush through it. So if I don't get to it this morning, we will come back next week and finish off the sovereignty of God. On both fronts, whether God is sovereign over creation or God is sovereign over creatures, there is opposition to that. There are those in Christian circles who claim that we who hold that God is sovereign over creation tend to be, quote, complacent about this world. That door's going to slam. We do not care about global warming, sea levels rising, and the fact that this world may succumb to itself because of humanity. Okay, yes, that is true. I don't care about global warming. What? Don't you love the earth? I do. I love God's creation. I love the fact that God has made everything for its season. And orange should be eaten in winter. Because it comes out in winter, right? A watermelon is supposed to be eaten in summer. High in water. I know, I know. I know there are those of you saying, no, it's got sugar in it. Don't eat it. I don't care about global warming because global warming, if it is warming, is God's doing. I don't care about global cooling if it is cooling because it would be God's doing. And it's interestingly interesting over the last few years, we went from Uh, environmental uh, concerns such as global warming and global warming change into global cooling. So they still use language of global warming, but the earth is getting colder. That's the science for today. I don't care about global warming because God did not decree that the world would implode upon itself because of the high carbon dioxide or uh, what is it, CO2 and, and what's the other thing? that uh, they say we pump into the atmosphere? Methane. I I don't care about global warming because God has sovereignly chosen to balance out those things. There's not going to be so much that we're all going to die by choking on the air. And that's what they're saying, that the sky is falling. Stuart Little, I think it's Stuart Little, right? No, it's Chicken Little. I don't care about global warming because there are those who say that the world is overpopulated and because of that there's 
Too much humans eating too much plants, for those of you greeners. There's too many um, uh, suburban areas coming up and there's no more land for us to live on. We are overpopulated. Do you know what? The amount of people on this earth is exactly what God desires to be on this earth. There is no overpopulation. Have you driven out to um, Mapumalanga? Have you seen the banana fields over there? Have you looked beyond the banana fields to the open um, landscapes of unpopulated area? You know what the problem is? Naturally, human beings were clustered. And so we look at the clusters of humanity and we say overpopulation. There's over enough land for everybody. Furthermore, there are those who oppose God's sovereignty because they fear that somehow God's freedom overrides the freedom of humanity. I like reading about worldviews. I do encourage you to get into that as well. There's various aspects of worldviews that are at play at this moment, right now as I'm talking. There are those of you who hold to a greener earth, who hold to um, overpopulation, that hold to the signs of this world, the narrative of our day and age, and you naturally reject that kind of language where I say, I don't care for that. I don't care about God's creation because God gave it. But I also know that God is absolutely sovereign over his creation. Modernity, that is the worldview or the philosophy of uh, the modern era, gave us human independence and freedom. Spoke to my wife a little bit about this. I don't know if she listens to me at times. Because when I speak about well, it's one of my favorite things besides eschatology. Um, yeah, and, and it's like talking to a blank face, but she just nods, nods and says, yes, mm, interesting. Modernity tells you that you as a human have free will. The freedom to do as you want, freedom of choice, individuality. Don't we see that today? Yes, we do. Now, let me complicate it. There is another worldview that is predicated upon modernity and it's called postmodernity or postmodernism as some of us know it. Postmodernity gave us human freedom in a community. Let's think about that a little bit more. Living in harmony with others and surroundings, we call it groupthink. Whatever the group decides, whatever is best for the group, that's what we have to submit to. Think. COVID. How we have to comply to everybody else. There's no longer the idea of individuality which was strong in modernity. But now individuality as it is demonstrated in community. They go as far as to say that community is living at peace with your surroundings. That is the environment and people. Freedom is not only limited by the group, but to the group. 
you are only uh, as free as the group allows you to be free. So, to be a good citizen is to wear masks and to sanitize and obey your government without question. Because that is what a good postmodern would do. Both modernity and postmodernity stand opposed, listen to this, to God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Why? Because at the heart of it is man's innate desire to free himself from God's control. What did the devil say to Eve? Did God really say? You know what that is? That's a challenge to the authority, supremacy, and absolute sovereignty of God. Is he really in control of your life? Don't you have individualism? Aren't you an individual that can decide your own freedom? Why is God limiting you? And that sin, that lie is still present today. As if you are free to do as you want. Yet at the same time, you willingly submit yourself to rules and regulations to do not touch, do not eat, do not go there. So at the... At the core, we say we believe in human freedom, but still give up human freedom. None of you are free. You work for a boss, don't you? If you have a wife, you're not free. That's not a joke. (laughs) We are all bound to something. We are bound by the laws of this country. Nobody's absolutely free other than God. This devilish idea that we somehow have inalienable, inviolable, unassailable personal freedom apart from God destroys true freedom. The only freedom that you have as a believer is to live free in Christ. That's the only freedom that we have. These Oppositions to God's sovereignty reveal that there's a constant rejection and rebellion against God's authority. We know this. We know it to be true. We see it working out in our own lives. You look at your children. Your sons love to say no. Your daughters like to pull their faces up. Don't tell me. Nobody likes to be under the thumb of someone else. We have an innate desire to be libertarian, to be free. Those who don't understand the sovereignty of God revolt against God. Because human freedom, according to most people, our liberty is foremost in the minds of sinful men. The sovereignty of God is being challenged daily on a number of fronts. But sadly, we see not only from the world that there is a challenge and a revolt against God's sovereignty, but also Christian circles. For instance, this has been recovered in recent times, renewed or re-energized. Clark Pinnock led many to believe that God is open to the development of future events. He says, and I quote, 
God's exhaustive knowledge does not include future free will choices. Take note of that word, free will choices. So God's exhaustive knowledge, He has knowledge, but it does not include future free will choices by mankind because they have not yet occurred, in quote. So God only knows what you've chosen. And even though he knows a lot of things, he doesn't know what you are going to choose next. I listened to John Piper. He hated the idea that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And one uh, speaker was talking at a conference, and Piper goes up to him with a pen in his hand, and he stands in front of him, and he drops the pen, and he said, I dropped it. I dropped the pen. You know what he's saying, right? God didn't make me do it. I dropped the pen. And as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, if God knows all things, and God ordains all things, what if he ordained for you to drop the pen to prove his point? Robert made a really interesting discussion about, what's that movie? Yeah, we won't mention it. It won't be in the recording. (laughs) About a guy who asks God, how many fingers does he hold up? And God says six. And he pulls his hand um, out from behind his back. How many fingers did he have? Six. I don't like the movie, but I get the analogy. He goes on to say, God's exhaustive knowledge, quote, does not include our free will choices. Decisions not yet made does not exist anywhere to be known even by God. They are potential, yet to be realized, but not actual. God can predict a a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because, take note of this, some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. Wow. The God of the Bible displays an openness to the future, that is, ignorance of the future, that the traditional view of omniscience, that is God's knowledge of all things, simply cannot accommodate, in quote. So if you believe that God knows all things, you're fooling yourself because He doesn't. There are certain things that He doesn't know about your choices. That is what Clark Pinnock says. Let me tell you that that is not the God of the Bible because that is not how God demonstrates Himself to be. So he says the way that we understand God's sovereignty and omniscience, that is God's ability to know all things, must be adapted. Why? Because of the mystery of hidden freedom. So he calls that a mystery as if it's unknown to God. That he somehow does not know what you will choose in life. In other words, your freedom can cause God to have to amend his plan because you chose to marry Jane and not John. You'll get that later. If that is not shocking enough, John Sanders in his book, The God Who Risks, says, and I quote, the overarching structures of creation are purposed by God, but not every single detail that occurs within them. With general 
providence, it makes sense to say that God intends uh, an overall purpose for creation. And that does not specifically intend, and that God does not specifically intend each and every action within the creation. So God is overall and he has a general plan, but does not deal specifically with specific plans. He makes an example. When a two-year-old child contracts (coughs) a painful and incurable bone cancer, that means suffering, uh, that I suppose he had to put in off there, that means suffering and death, it is pointless evil. I'm going to read what I think he was supposed to say. That means of suffering and death, it is pointless evil. The Holocaust is pointless evil. God does not have a specific purpose in mind of these occurrences. End quote. So when the Holocaust occurred, when Israel's captivity in Babylon occurred, God doesn't have a specific purpose for that. It's just pointless evil taking place to God's people. Sadly, this is an anemic understanding that a lot of people possess about God. We say, oh, no, no, yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God as a general principle, but I don't believe that God is sovereign over every detail. Sanders suggests that God doesn't have a specific agenda. Interesting, because God says, I'm going to send you into captivity. Some of you will die, but I will bring out my remnant. I will do that. God says that I will bring a calamity upon you to purify you. God says, I will do that. God uses history to demonstrate his own power in Isaiah, especially chapter 40. He uses the, the, the procedures of life in, a, in Job from chapter 38 to 40 to show Job that in everything he has a plan and a purpose. And yet we say, maybe God doesn't have a specific plan for a child that is born with an incurable disease. We may not know what the plan is, but he has a plan. Saunders goes on to say, and I quote, It is God's desire that we enter into a give and take relationship of love. And this is not accomplished by God's forcing his blueprint on us. So if God is sovereign and he has absolute control of every detail in life, then he's forcing his blueprint on you, which means that you are not what? This is what the whole discussion is about. Human freedom. Your ability to choose. And God's inability to dictate your choice. This kind of thinking where God is figuring out with you what you are going to do is alien to the Bible. Scripture, in contrast to these errant views of God, gives us a detailed outline of how God sovereignly works. Let me give you a few examples. God is sovereign over, number one, the fall of a sparrow, Matthew chapter 10. 
The rolling of a dice. Ever thought about that? Proverbs 16.33, God determines how the dice would fall. Interesting for those of you who play games. <laughs> the slaughter of his people. Psalm 44.11. The decision of kings. Proverbs 21.1. The failing of sight. For those of you who are starting to go blind, even in that detail, God is sovereign. Exodus 4.11. The sickness of children, 2 Samuel 12.11. The loss and gain of money, 1 Samuel 2.7. The suffering of saints, 1 Peter 4.19. The completion to travel plans, James 4.15. The persecution of Christians, Hebrews 12.4-7. The repentance of souls, 2 Timothy 2.25. The gift of faith, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. The pursuit of holiness, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through to 13, the growth of believers, Hebrews 6, 3, the giving of life and the taking of life in death, 1 Samuel 2, 6. The restraint of evil, Genesis. Just Genesis. Remember when Abraham and Sarah goes into um, a certain district and Sarah gets taken by a king, is it Ahimelech, Abimelech, I think? Can't remember. Um, God withholds the hand of the king to take her to be his wife or as his wife. And then Isaac does the same thing. It's Isaac and Jacob. They do the same thing. God withholds the hand of evil of those unbelieving kings over those who are his. An interesting thing, and I'll probably mention this later again. When Israel goes out to worship once a year to the Lord, who goes out to the mountain? Who goes out to the mount, I should say? The men. All the men once a year from your people will go out. Who stays behind? The women and the children exposed. You know what God does? He blinds the minds of the unbelieving pagan nations around Israel so that they do not attack God's people. Tell me that that is not sovereignty. This means that there is no question that from the tree in the garden to the Son of God on the tree on Calvary, God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He is working out His divine decree. Now let me just remind you the definition of sovereignty. What is sovereignty? First, we could say that God is absolutely in control over all things all the time. That means that God's sovereignty is, is the execution of His divine kingship and lordship through His decretive power over all things. Kids, if your parents ask you, what does God's sovereignty mean? All you have to say is that He is in control. He's in control. That's what it means. There is only one who has absolute power, absolutely over all things. That is our God. God's sovereignty is comprehensive and final. Now, Let's look at the text in Psalm 93. 
God's sovereignty is seen in his control and authority over creation. I want to bring to your attention the detail of God's sovereignty over what he has made. For God to be in absolute control, he must have absolute power. For God to have absolute power, he must possess absolute control. That is the demonstration of God's sovereignty. If that is true, then you can expect to see his power in creation. Because that is what absolute power and control implies. Here we see, number one, the scope of God's sovereignty. Verse one. Yahweh reigns. Proposition. This is what he's going to explain. This is what he wants his hearers to understand. God, the Lord, reigns. He is robed in majesty, explains and qualifies the one who reigns. Yahweh is robed, for he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be Moved. I explained to you last week that word never is a little bit too strong for the Hebrew that's being used here. It should be that it will not be moved rather than never. Yahweh reigns. This is a statement of reality. This is the propositional truth that governs the psalm. God reigns. Let me ask you, what kind of language is that? Who do we normally speak of in terms of reigning? A king, rightly said. But notice how he describes this king. Yahweh reigns as king or overall he is robed in majesty. When they speak of kings, they speak of their splendor by means of how they are clothed. You look upon a king and his royal uh, demonstration is in his throne and what he wears. If you've got a king that looks like a gardener or a king that looks like the maid, he's not a very important king. That's a very poor kingdom. You don't want to be under such a king. Notice what he says, that Yahweh reigns and he is robed in what? Majesty. It's a way of explaining that which envelops him, that which enclothes him. What is the robe that God wears? His own majesty. He is clothed with himself. It's another way of saying it. God exclusively reigns. The text literally means that Yahweh assumes his kingship. When we speak of lordship, we think of New Testament lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all, for all, forever for all. Does that make sense? He's always Lord. So when the New Testament applies lordship to Jesus Christ, it is equaling Jesus' lordship to God's lordship. That is what he's expressing here. That Yahweh is Lord, he is the one who reigns, he is the one who has absolute kingship and authority over all things all the time. This verse not only expresses God's 
eternal lordship, but expresses his authority as lordship. God's authority is measured by his own essence. He's clothed by his majesty. Nobody attributes authority to God. Nobody gives to God the right to rule. Nobody is able to counsel God to do anything. That is what he's saying. He's clothed with his own essence, with his own majesty, with his own glory, with his own beauty. This means that God has inherent authority and right to do as he pleases. Control means that God has the power to direct the whole course of nature and history as he pleases. That is power. If you live in a home with parents, so if you are a child in other words, you know what that means. There is authority. But there is power. And generally, it is the dad who executes that power to say this and not that. Now in some uh, colored families, the, there is a matriarchy and the woman is in control and she calls the shots. Sometimes it's grandma. This and not that. That is power. She may not be present or he may not be present, but you know if you step over the line, there are consequences. Authority, on the other hand, means that he has the right to do it. He, does only, he not only has the power to execute his own will, but he has the authority, the right. So when dad says, um, we are not going to the beach today because Johnny decided to paint the TV. That is it. Now, Johnny, please don't paint the TV. Dad has sovereign authority and power to control the outcome. And so no more beach for the rest of the year. That is it. That's final. That is what God does. He has complete authority and power to decree what he wants, whenever he wants, the way that he wants it. We don't like that. Children doesn't like it when dad says, no, no more beach for the rest of the year. Or your game time is gone, right? We revolt. How dare you take my TV time? God alone has sovereign authority and control and power to execute his divine plan. In other words, everything exists to accomplish this plan. I'll deal with that later on, not today, but later on in this sermon series. There is no jurisdiction limitation on God's reign and rule. When he says Yahweh reigns, it's an absolute, categorical, uncontested proposition. He reigns, period. End of discussion. There is nothing that ever causes God concern. Why? Because he is in absolute control over all things. Why does the psalmist tell us about the garb of God? He's clothed in majesty. While here, the regal garb is his own essence. He represents himself. God does not have to give an account to anybody else. 
That is why he is clothed with his majesty. It's unattributed power and glory. He's not subject to anybody but himself. God is not only self-contained, self-sufficient, self-determining, and self-presenting, but self-limiting. Does that make sense? The only limitation to God's activity and God's power is God. And since He is infinite, He therefore possesses what? Infinite, sovereign control over all things for all time. God's illustrious majesty or majestic beauty surrounds him. And the psalmist says, this is our God. He alone is clothed with strength. Notice what he says in the next line. Yahweh is robed. He has put on strength as a belt. He has put on might, power, or ability. He alone has that right to act. Verse 1 tells us who God is. It tells us what God does. He reigns, He rules with absolute power. It tells us that God alone is free. He has unlimited power, unlimited strength, unlimited authority, and it is not endowed or given or ascribed to Him. So Sanders and Pinnock are both wrong in saying that we give God right. When we make decisions, then God has to comply with our choices. If that is the case, if God is responding to your choice, who has sovereign will then? You do. If God is responding to anybody, then he is not God. He ceases to have the right to be called God. Read Isaiah 40 absolute clear expression of that. What this means then is God has absolute power. We call this omnipotence. That is the theological word. It is the possession of all power, strength, and might to do what he desires. How do we know this? Look at the end of verse 1. Yes, the world is established. It shall not be Moved. Why will the world not be moved? Two reasons. God established it. Number two, because of who God is. Think about that. If God set the world, this globe, in its orbit, if God set every element or atom in its place in this world, then there is nothing absolutely nothing that can overthrow this world or the people of this world because God is in control. There is nothing that will ever fling. (laughs) I read many years ago, uh, every year you get this um, asteroid scare. It's big in the state. In the states, there's there's, a an asteroid the size of Texas that's flying by the earth and it's going to cause tremendous disruptions or if it crashes into the earth it's going to be a cataclysmic event 
a quarter of the world will die or something to that effect. You get this every uh, Time magazine or National Geographic has these episodes where they go through this cataclysmic global apocalyptic events. They've realized it now with COVID. Let me tell you this. It will not happen. There is no asteroid that's going to crash into Earth and destroy half of the Earth. Why do I know that? Because God has not decreed that to happen in His Word. Will there be asteroids crashing into Earth? Sure. Will we succumb to uh, an asteroid crashing into Earth? No. Will we succumb to any natural environmental, environmental cataclysmic event? No, because that's not how God decreed this world to end. He will bring it to end. He's the only one that has absolute right and authority to bring this world to nothing and create a new one. The greeners, global warmers, and global flooders who complain about overpopulation and eating all the grass and eating all the plants and all these things. It is interesting that there's always greenery around. With all the complaints, this God has provided sufficient greenery for everybody to eat. We just don't want to eat it. I like my steak. Or should I say my lamb chops? The earth is not hotter than it should be. The earth is not colder than it should be. It is exactly where God decreed it to be today. Why? Because of who he is and what he has decreed. Hebrews 1, 3 says this, He sustains the world and everything in it by the word of His power. He holds the world together by His word. God says, no, and it is no. There is nothing that will destroy this world. It remains standing because God says so. I like what Archie Sproul said once. There is no, quote, maverick molecule in the universe, end quote. Amen. There is no virus or molecule or atom that is acting out of place. Consider that, believers. COVID is not out of control. Cancer is not out of control. HIV is not out of control. Yes, it is spreading, but it's exactly where God wants it to be. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, then it means we believe that everything in this world is here for a specific reason and for a specific season. The sovereignty of God is the cornerstone of the believer's confidence and comfort in trouble. Which is what we see here in this psalm. Look at the substance of God's sovereignty. Verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. That is the kind of king you want to submit to. That is the kind of Lord you want. One who eternally reigns. 
who's always in control. And that is the implication here. Your throne is established again, throne relating to kingship and lordship. There's a connection between the two. It is of old. Why? Because the one who sits on the throne is of old. And that doesn't mean he's old. It just means it's a Hebrewism uh, to say that he's always been exalted. So the one on the throne has always been exalted. You are everlasting is the explanation of the first line. Your throne is established and you are of old because you are from everlasting. He's the eternal one. He's the one who reigns. He always reigns. God reigns and rules eternally because he himself is eternal. The weight of this reality is that we can have absolute confidence and comfort in the outcome. Whatever it is, know that God is absolutely in control of it. This world, as tumultuous as it is, is still absolutely where it's supposed to be. How do I know this? Look at verse 3 and 4. This is the demonstration of God's sovereignty. And there's a little bit of a confusion here as to why this fits into this psalm. And I think it's pretty simple. The floods have lifted up, O Yahweh. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Why on earth would you add any comment about the floods? This might seem out of place. But remember the context. God reigns. He's in absolute control. How does he demonstrate it? Well, look at the oceans is what he's saying. If he's in control, what is this noise that we are hearing from the oceans? He anthropomorphizes. I know that's not a word. (laughs) It's anthropomorphic. But he gives a human attribute to The floods, and he says, they have raised up their voices. They are in revolt. They are uncontrollable, it seems. Does that sound familiar? The oceans are rising 1% every 10 years. But the oceans are rising. The forces of nature are out of control. Do you not hear the world winds every year that comes about every time? Look at the storm surges. These are unnatural. You know what this author says? It seems as if the, the, the waters are even revolting against God's authority. It seems as if they are uncontrollable. It is interesting to, uh, when I, I did some investigation, that a large amount of the countries are below sea level. Ever, ever notice that? A lot of countries are below sea level. Now, I'm going to point out to you something that is really interesting to me. It's, it's almost... Um, Insane, for lack of a better word. Look at verse 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. 
Yahweh on high is mighty. It seems like things are out of control as I witness the oceans rising, as I witness these waves coming big towards me. You know what my comfort is? Yahweh is mightier than the waters. Yahweh is mightier than the sound of many waters because Yahweh is not only on high, but mighty. Do you get what he's saying? It is not out of control because the one who reigns from the throne is in absolute control of everything that takes place, even those waters that seem to be uncontrollable. Wow. No man can calm a raging storm on the ocean. No one. Doesn't matter how much you try. What's that magician that walked on the waters, uh, quote-unquote, tried to walk on the water, which turned out to be fake? Nobody can control water. I don't care who you are, unless you're a man who is God in a boat, sleeping. Think about that. What is Jesus expressing when he calms the storm? I am God. Because nobody is above the raging storm other than our God. Like I said to you, many cities and countries are below sea level. Has it occurred to you that there's more water on earth than there's landmass? Hmm. 70% of the earth is covered by what? Water. Fire? What? Who said fire? Consider the following. Israel, below sea level. Large areas in Africa, Antarctica, China, Kazakhstan, Japan, India, Denmark, Netherlands, Germany, Italy, Ireland, parts of the U.S., Australia, New Zealand. Consider Australia and New Zealand, two little islands. Well, they don't think they're little, but two little islands with oceans on either side. Imagine a tsunami overruns those, not that I'm wishing it on them, but imagine, they would cease to exist below sea level in the middle of the ocean, and yet it doesn't overrun these countries. Why? Have you ever wondered why? It's almost ridiculous to think that there is a little line that God has drawn and the oceans can't pass it. I want you to consider this. Why do the oceans not rise up and sink all the land mass even though it has the capacity to do so? Because it can't. Because God, not that he has a finger, but has drawn a line in the sand with his finger and he says, this far and no further. Notice, it is not boulders, it is not Mountains, it is not elevation, sand. God has put a separation between the oceans and the land. What is it? Sand. Think about that whenever you go to the beach. You see that ocean and it's above your head, it's pretty high, right? It should naturally run over and cover the rest of the land, but it doesn't because there's a a little thing called the beach, a patch of sand that keeps the ocean from the land. Have you ever considered that? 
How ridiculous that is that it is sand that keeps the ocean from the land because that is what God has said. You may think, no, not possible. Turn over to Proverbs 8, 29. I never thought about this until my last reading through the Old Testament, which was pretty interesting. Verse 29, he says, um, When, I'm going to read from 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. Speaking about wisdom. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made the skies, uh, when he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress. Take note. His command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman saying that wisdom always accompanied God. Now go to Jeremiah. What is this command? Chapter 5. Verse 22. Do not fear me. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? I placed, what does it say? The sand as a boundary for the sea. A perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the water starts, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, isn't that similar to what we just read? They cannot pass over it. Do you know why the oceans can never overrun the landmass? Because of a small little strip of sand that God has placed in front of it. That is absolutely ridiculous. Think about that. Sand keeps the ocean. Not that it's the sand itself. It is God's command to say this is how far you will go and no further. That is God's sovereign sovereignty on display every day over his creation. Consider that when you go to the ocean. God's power to absolutely rule over all things, even a simple thing such as the ocean, obeys his command. Creation is subject to our God. He alone reigns in power and authority. Let me end on this. Back to Psalm 93. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Yahweh, forever. There's a balance here. Absolute power, and uh, in our day and age says, absolutely corrupts, right? Uh, or corrupts absolutely. I don't know what it is, but you know. You know the thing. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, there is an absolute balance to the existence of God. Take note. Your decrees are very trustworthy. We can trust in what you have decided. Why? Holiness befits your house because what you dwell in. We dwell in a house. God dwells in what? Holiness. Because of who he is, he will never act ungodly. 
because you can't. Because of who he is, he will never act in an unholy way. The balance to God's absolute power is God's absolute holiness. This is his comfort. I can trust in you because of who you are. I can hope in you because of who you are. I can know that all things work together for the good because of who you are. There is nothing out of control because of who you are. This is the comfort that should be our consolation in times such as these. The sad reality is that we have almost forgotten that God is in absolute control as we look at the fear of COVID. Everybody's scared of it, or some of us are. There are those of you who snub your noses at COVID. There are greater, let me put it this way. The greatest threat to humanity is not COVID-2. The greatest threat to humanity is the unwillingness to submit to the authority of God. God is not going to judge you because you believe in COVID or not. God is going to judge you because you refuse to submit to his lordship. God is going to stand over you as judge because you do not want to acknowledge him as the sovereign over all things. God will stand over you as judge and executor because you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God, the Lord, the sovereign one on the throne, and you will be banished forever, not because you don't believe in COVID or whether you do believe in God. That's not the point of our existence. Our existence before God should be marked by how and what we believe about God. If we believe God is sovereign, let's live in the light of his sovereignty. This is the surety of God's sovereignty that he is in control. Father, thank you for such powerful display of your authority, sovereignty, and power in holiness. Lord, there's so much to say on this discussion. We can never exhaust it. And so we thank you, Lord, that you, you reign. You reign absolutely. You absolutely reign in holiness from your throne forever. Cause us to bow as obedient subjects before your throne. As many are bowing before governments and before mandates, help us to bow before your throne. Lord, change your minds, change your hearts, change our convictions, that we may live in, in, in light of who you are, in the light of your sovereignty, as we seek to honor you in times such as these. Pray for those who are not believers. Pray that you would open their hearts. May they become your children. May they come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and sovereign Savior. So we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.